Greetings in our Lord Jesus Christ and welcome to Christ Church of Livingston County Teaching Ministry. Christ Church is a member of the Communion of Reformed Evangelical Churches, Tyndale Presbytery. The following audio recording is from a Covenant Renewal Liturgy at Christ Church. We trust you will be edified and ministered to by the Holy Spirit through this audio recording. We've come, as we have come before God and praised His name, been called to worship, we are also called to confess our sins. We hear this from Revelation chapter 3 this morning, the letter uh, to the church in Laodicea. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So, because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire, so that you may be rich. And white garments, so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. And salve to anoint your eyes, so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. And so, be zealous and repent. Thus far, the reading of God's word today. The Laodiceans were lukewarm in their faith, and God did not like it. Notice the source of their spiritual weakness. They said they didn't need anything. Jesus says, blessed are the poor, those who know what they lack. But the Laodiceans were a rich city with lots of natural resources, the very ones that we see listed here, in fact. I salve, gold, uh, these, these things. Jesus tells them they need to get from him all the things that they have in abundance. So I ask you this morning, what is it that you think you are doing all right in right now? We get self-satisfied and forget that we need Jesus. So let us confess our sins before Almighty God. We have our prayer of confession printed in the bulletin. So again, this week we'll uh, pray together. We invite you to kneel as you uh, confess your sins. Heavenly Father, thank you for this word as we have uh, read in the Gospel of John. Grant us your Holy Spirit's guidance as we uh, ponder, as we hear this text preached. May my preaching be faithful. May our thoughts be honoring to you. Uh, May we seek in all things to magnify the living word, Jesus Christ. And we pray in his name. Amen. Well, my title of the sermon today is The Gladness of God Given. And I'd like to just keep that phrase in mind, the gladness of God given. That's what we see here in this text. Jesus is the source of joy in our lives, even when there is trouble, when there is disorder, when there is some kind of lack. Jesus remains the source of joy. That's the big picture. Let's just dive right in verse by verse today. Uh, The very first thing I have for you is rather a unique uh, thought. Uh, You see on on the third day in verse 1. And what we have here is a, one of these little 
uh, things that John often inserts very subtly into his text, and it's one of these sevens. Uh, John is a writer who always puts sevens into his uh, writing. You see it in Revelation, of course, a lot of sevens, right? Here's, here's an obscure one. If you look back at um, chapter 1, and I don't even have all the references listed, so I hope I can find them off the cuff here. Uh, you have a lot of the next days in John chapter 1, right? So if you begin at verse 19, that's kind of the, the historical origin. There's day 1, right? The testimony of John, and the Jews come to him. So there's day 1. And then verse 29, the next day. So day 2, John says, Behold the Lamb of God. And then you jump down to verse 35. The next day again, John was standing with the two of his disciples. That's day three. Right? Then you jump to verse 30, uh, 43. The next day, Jesus decides to go to Galilee. That's day four. Right? So now, we, we, in the beginning of our text, on the third day, four plus three, it's the seventh day since Jesus' beginning of his public ministry, and he's now in Galilee. Now, we've got to be careful here with strict chronology. I, I don't know. The point is, this is the way John wrote it, literarily, to say, look, on the seventh day, there was a wedding feast, and they're in Galilee, and, and the wine runs out. So uh, I think John's point is that you have another creation week beginning. Right? That's how he begins his whole gospel. In the beginning, and he's, he's wanting you to think of creation. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, the word was with God. All, all that creation week kind of thought. And so now he's got the next day, the next day, the next day, just like Genesis 1. There was evening and there was morning the first day. It's amazing. And, and so you're counting days. And so on the third day, oh, that's okay, five, six, seven. Sabbath, rest. And on that day, there's a wedding. And there's rejoicing. And there's feasting. So it's a, it's a sign of the end, the, the restoration, the culmination of creation, uh, when we'll all sit down at the wedding feast of the Lamb. And, and Jesus, on that day, is at a wedding with his mother, with his disciples, and the wine runs out. Well, I jumped ahead there a little bit. One point before that. Notice that Jesus was welcome at a wedding. Jesus was welcome at a wedding. His disciples come. His mother comes. We don't know the details. It seems like maybe the, uh, Mary knows the, the host uh, not sure exactly, I can't speculate beyond that. But Jesus is welcome at a wedding. He was not known as a killjoy. And, and that's something to remember. Jim Boyce uh, talks about this. He says, if someone's having a good time, they immediately suspect that the cause of the fun is either illegal, immoral, or fattening. Something must be going wrong if somebody's having a good time. There's a Christian comedian long ago that I heard he said sometimes we have that view of God that, that, that he's up in heaven and he sees oh my people are having fun no stop that out no that's not the idea at all Jesus here is at a wedding feast in Cana of Galilee shows the, the contrast with John the Baptist also by the way right John came not eating and drinking he's wearing camel's hair in the desert he's the ascetic Jesus comes eating and drinking at parties, he's with Matthew's tax collector friends. Jesus is accused of being a, a glutton and a wine-bibber because he's at these parties and he's feasting. Well, that's the picture of Jesus we want to have right off the bat. Then verse 3, he, the groom runs out of wine. And the mother of Jesus says to him, they have no wine. Very understated. It's like Jesus probably knew that at this point. 
So why does she say that? Well, she wants him to do something about it. How would she know what, what's going on here? Well, notice first of all the problem. And if you've got your outline, here's the first point of the outline. The, the problem, the power, and the purpose is, is my basic uh, structure today. So here's the problem. They ran out of wine. Uh, so for broader application of this to us right away, just remember, running out of wine means any time in life you notice a lack. Something's missing. You don't have something you need. Right? This is why we looked at Revelation 3 today. The Laodiceans said, I don't lack anything. We have everything we need. Well, why would you need Jesus then? No, we have to notice our lack. We have to know what our problem is. A friend isn't there anymore. A family member has died. The job isn't paying what the bills require. Whatever it is. Spiritually, your peace or your joy just doesn't line up with the great salvation that you know that you've received. Whatever the problem is that you're facing, Jesus came to taste that lack, to taste our poverty, whatever form that takes for you. He knows our difficulties. And this is a pretty embarrassing one for the groom. Go back to John 2 here. You're at a wedding. It's his job to host the, the, the feast, to have enough food and drink for everybody. Jesus knows that kind of embarrassment. They have no wine. So Mary involves Jesus. Why? We don't know. She knows there's something special about him probably, and, and now he's returned from Judea with several disciples back to her home territory. These are her people. Her son is special. They have no wine. It must be time for his appearance. But no, not yet, Jesus says. And he makes that clear in his response. He begins with the, the word woman, which in English often gives us this sense of, uh, of disrespect, right? You know, kind of the slang, woman. He's not talking to her like that. It's not, it's not a woman. What are you? He's not all upset like that. This is just a term of respect in, in the Hebrew language, in the Greek, in this way. He's simply addressing her respectfully. But you don't really see it from son to mother, notice. It's not mother, it's woman. And that's important. Right? It's an adult man to an adult woman, showing Jesus is not under his mother's thumb. He's beginning his own public ministry. That maybe there's something in here to apply that, that a, sometimes a well-meaning mother that gives detailed and misguided advice to a grown son. Got to watch out for that kind of thing. Scripture records those awkward moments and the flaws of biblical figures like Mary that were tempted to idolize. Well, Maybe there's a mild rebuke there for mothers, uh, ambitious for their children, right? And they meddle too directly in their calling as a result. The, the mother of the sons of Zebedee comes to mind. She asks for uh, to Jesus to give her two sons the two seats at his right and his left. So that's the kind of thing going on here, perhaps. Jesus, do something spectacular. It's your moment. It's your time to shine. And Jesus' response, verse 4, uh, what does this have to do with me? The Greek here is really weird and awkward. It's Literally, it says, what to me and to you? And we try to smooth that out. And so your ESV has it. What does this have to do with me? It's interesting, the, 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 that Greek, that you have the same idea, the same kind of idiom, what to me and to you. Uh, David uses that uh, with, king, with Joab. Uh, when David is the king and Joab wants to kill Shimei for cursing David. Remember that? Joab was always the... Let's go kill him. And David says, no, 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 hold back. 
trying to make friends with this guy. He's going to be an ally. But Joab goes and kills him. And so David, a couple of times in, in that account, uses that same phrase, what to me and to you. What it is, is it's distancing you from the speaker. Right? Hey, we, we don't have the same agenda right now. We're not on the same page. You're not working with me here. It's, it's that, kind of, uh, that kind of communication. My, my hour hasn't come, Jesus is saying to Mary. Jesus is basically telling Mary not to rush his time. Uh, now, when Jesus says his hour, he's usually meaning the cross. Uh, and, and one thing this tells us is that Jesus has the cross in mind already, right from the beginning. His hour, he's got his in mind already. And his ministry of healing and miracles and teaching, all that isn't just preparation for the cross. There's a strong connection. He's starting to reveal his glory. Right? He can provide wine. He can heal. He can teach. All that's connected to the cross. It's not like he does this one thing first and then some other separate thing next. They're connected. So he heals and he provides joy here. He does that through the atonement. But here, early on, he reveals his glory. Well, Jesus doesn't want to leave the party embarrassed either. So he quietly does this miracle. It appears no one really finds out who did it, except the people who fill the pots with water and take it to Jesus. Uh, take it to the, the MC, I call him. Uh, so G- Mary says, do whatever he tells you. She seems to get the hint. We don't know how, that, that maybe he'll do something, even though he's just said, what does this have to do with me? So, so she's holding out hope. Do whatever he says. So whenever you have a problem, uh, do whatever Jesus tells you. When you notice your lack, when you notice what's missing in your life, do what Jesus tells you. Look to him. Not for your own convenience, your own agenda, right? You're embarrassed. There's this embarrassing moment, and you want Jesus to spare you in that moment. Take away that embarrassment. Make me feel better. That might not necessarily happen, but do whatever Jesus tells you. Well, that's the problem. We have, second, the power. Jesus has the power to provide in your problem. We see it beautiful description of what's done here. They fill the jars with water. They, they fill up to the brim, draw some out, to bring it to the master of the feast. Verse 8, he tastes the water, now become wine. Notice how it's almost an afterthought, an aside in the grammar, what Jesus did. It's, it's, it's not really built up in, in the language. And then it was water, and then Jesus did this abracadabra thing, and then it was wine. It's not like that. It's, they brought the water, and which had become wine, and then he tasted it. it. It's this parentheses. So it's really making it, this is a background kind of miracle. It's not like everybody was watching. Everybody at the feast. That nobody was watching Jesus do this, it seems. Well, in spite of that, Jesus has power to provide. Jesus doesn't touch the pots or the water. He just wills this change on its own, and it's done. Christ has power over his creation. He's the word through whom all things were made. As God used Elijah to keep the oil flowing in the widow's jar, as he multiplied, Jesus multiplied bread and fish for the crowds, so he turns water into wine here. I always find the amount interesting. That's called out for a couple of reasons, I think. One, because there's so much. 20 or 30 gallons a piece of, of these six stone jars. So, you, you know, do some quick math. 120 gallons at least 
up to 180 gallons of wine. Now, what's going on there? Well, uh, in the history that I've read, there's probably hundreds of people there. Small towns would attend weddings like this, where everybody knows everybody else. Most of Cana is probably there. Uh, probably, and since Mary and Jesus are invited, there's maybe a Nazareth connection. Nazareth is very close to Cana uh, there in Galilee. Uh, so maybe, you know, half of two towns uh, are here at this wedding feast. Uh, these wedding feasts were not kind of the three to five hour affairs that we plan today. They would go on for days and days, up to a week, uh, this kind of feast. So the power of Jesus here easily matches the need, right? He's making uh, 150 or so gallons of wine. And think of the helpless feeling this groom must have felt. All these people, and we have no more wine. And he's got no resource, no recourse uh, to, to fix this. Jesus easily meets the need. Uh, at the homeschool convention I was at yesterday, the last speaker we heard uh, was the pilot who was supposed to be flying the plane on 9-11, the same plane that was hijacked into the World Trade Towers. There was a pilot that got bumped last second and didn't fly that plane, and, and he was spared. He was speaking yesterday, a great speaker, uh, and he described that helpless feeling of watching on TV. Those of us who are watching, we know that feeling. The towers are smoking and falling. We're watching this on TV with this helpless feeling. We can't do anything about this. We don't like that helpless feeling, the speaker reminded us. But, but Paul felt that feeling too, and God reminded him in 2 Corinthians 4, God's power is made perfect in our weakness. In our weakness, God's power is made known. That's the point. Jesus has the power to provide in this kind of problem. So Jesus uh, makes this uh, wine from water, brings it to the feast, and you have this comment from the groom, and this will take us into the purpose. Uh, everyone who serves the good wine first, uh, they serve the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you've waited for, to bring the good stuff out until now. He doesn't quite get it either, right? He thinks the, the, the groom has done it. So everyone, is, again, the glory of Jesus here is hidden uh, in a way. Well, let's consider that. A few uh, application points under purpose, and that'll be our last uh, point here. So first, Jesus honors marriage by being at this wedding. This is something we often say at the beginning of the wedding ceremony, right? Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today, right? One thing that's said next often is, Jesus honored the institution of marriage by his presence at the wedding in Cana of Galilee. That's something to remember. Uh, Jesus' first miracle happened at a wedding. So uh, the institution of marriage is something that Jesus honored with his presence. Second, this is a sign more than just a miracle. Right? We see the sign language given in verse 11. The first of his signs. And he manifested his glory. So the point is, it really happened, but it's also pointing to a deeper spiritual reality. It's not just showing Jesus can walk on water. Jesus can mess with the elements of creation. Wow, that's, that's an interesting spectacle. There's a deeper meaning. 
I'm going to look at that a moment here. It, it's all throughout the text. But first of all, we see it in the stone jars. Right? And John actually says in verse 6, Therefore the Jewish rites of purification. Uh, what you had going on there is, if you had earthenware jars, if they became unclean, they had to be broken, smashed. You couldn't reuse them. So you would have to buy new. Uh, and so the Jews believed that stone could be reused if it became unclean. And so there was a, a common practice that they would use stone jars when there was some ritual something that had to be done because else you had to keep breaking jars and buying new or, or replacing. So if you had stone, you could reuse that more. So these jars are being used for ritual purification in some way. So Jesus here is, is drawing from the well, so to speak, of the Old Testament. He's using these very stone jars, big ones, right, 120 gallons, using these big jars to make wine himself. I just noticed another point yesterday, that the Bronze Sea in Solomon's temple holds the same amount of, of uh, liquid that's mentioned here. Same amount. It's a strong reference to God's covenant to, with Israel. So, so the Old Testament itself describes the Messiah's re restoration of Israel as a time when wine will flow freely. Right? Saw that in Amos 9. I, that was one of the highlights of my life, this Amos 9 passage. Uh, when I took my uh, tour of Israel and Turkey, I, we were standing, uh, there's a mountain right next to the Sea of Galilee. We climbed the mountain. So we're standing, looking down on the Sea of Galilee on the right, and then all these beautiful, fertile hills, grain and vineyards, uh, off to the side, looking down on, on all of this. And then our tour guide stood up and read Amos 9.13. Behold, the days are coming. The plowman shall overtake the reaper, the treader of grapes, him who sows seed. The mountains shall drip with sweet wine. And that's what you see uh, on the mountainside, all these vineyards, all these hills flowing with it. So part of the purpose of the sign here is that Jesus is bringing in the last days. Jesus can make the wedding feast overflow with wine. And predictions like that also admit that things aren't yet how they should be, right? So, uh, so th this is a sign, that, and this is pointing us to Old Testament promises, to Old Testament rituals. There are six jars, which is, here's some biblical numerology. Uh, I get into this sometimes. So six is one short of the perfect seven, right? Seven is John's number. Remember, John's the one who gives us the number of the Antichrist, 666, right? But part of the point of which is that's one short of perfection because man has fallen short of God's glory. We're not perfect. We're, we're lacking. So there's six jars. The, the Old Testament law, what those were used for, is powerless in itself to provide the wine. The law is powerless to provide the righteousness we need because of our sin. That's the point of the Hebrews reading this morning. Only Jesus can give the joy. And he comes on the seventh day, and he does it. We see this in the next chapter in, in John the Baptist making Jesus the real groom of the wedding. Right? I've heard his voice. It's my joy to be the one, the friend of the bridegroom who hears his voice. So Jesus is providing the wine, the feast. He's bringing something different, something better than the Old Testament law. Uh, built upon it, using it in that foundation, 
but he surpasses it. It's richer. And at his last Passover, he takes a cup of wine as they're going through the Passover meal. And he points it not to the lamb of Passover, but to his blood, redeeming us from our sin. So the the point of the purpose here is Jesus fulfills the Old Testament law. He surpasses that law, and he fulfills the promises. Uh, Third point here, Jesus as source of joy amidst our difficulties. He's the source. And I had a, uh, a bunch of stuff here on this being real wine as opposed to grape juice. I think I'm going to skip some of that. Uh, just summarize in this way. Uh, the Bible often speaks of wine making merry, being a gift uh, to men. Psalm 104, uh, Judges 9, uh, many different places. And, also, and the scripture also speaks of um, wine being a danger. It, it can mock us. If you abuse it, if you overdo it, it will hurt you. It will hurt others. So we have to watch out for that. But this is, this is real wine. It's, it's rather obvious in several different ways. Uh, the, the, the temperance folks often like to go to the, the semantics. Well, that word could mean this or that and, that, and they get into the word. But they forget sometimes the context. Verse 9 is one of the most obvious. You know, why do you serve the good wine first and, and the cheaper stuff later? It's because after they've had the good stuff, there's a little bit of numbness. They can't, their taste buds aren't as attuned, so it doesn't matter as much. You don't have that with grape juice. Well, I already had five glasses of grape juice, so I guess I can have the cheaper grape juice now and it won't matter. That, that doesn't make sense. This is real wine. Well, uh, the point there uh, we can make about uh, being careful not to overdo uh, on the wine, and again, uh, sometimes that's also pointed out that Jesus made so much wine. How can that be? If it's real wine, why would he make so much? Because then everybody's going to get drunk. Well, no, not if there's half of two towns involved and you're using this over several days. Not really. So that's, that's another part of the argument, I think, that uh, this is real wine. But we also want to remember, as we, as, as we say, Jesus is using real wine. We have real wine on the table for communion. Uh, we also need to have boundaries to that. We don't want to get to the point where we're out of control. We don't want to be, have wine mock us. There is the possibility to abuse uh, alcohol. But the possibility of abuse doesn't require disuse. Uh, my favorite saying on this is Martin Luther's. He, he makes an analogy to um, men in how they treat women. Right? Uh, just because a man can exploit a woman, take advantage of her, even abuse her, that's no reason, Luther says, to ban all women. <laughs> Another humorous little thing. No. But different men will have different, more or less temptation when it comes to women, and so need to be careful how they uh, interact. And it's the same way with, with alcohol. Some people have a harder time uh, dealing with that temptation, so we need to be careful how we man- uh, manage that. Well, fascinating to me, just in summary of all that, that God takes this, this dangerous substance, but also a joy-giving substance, and he makes it a primary symbol of our blessing, this dangerous thing. I think partly to, to, to tell us, look, all of the blessings that I may give you can be dangerous. You can misuse any blessing I give you, and it can turn your heart away from me who gave it to you. Well, uh, the bigger picture here is that the joy that God brings to us in Christ. Psalm 23 tells us, my cup runs over. 
Psalm 4, 7 says, You've put gladness in my heart more than in the season when their grain and wine increase. Wine is a symbol of God's blessing, the joy that he gives, the gladness of God given. Last little point in verse 11. Uh, this is the conclusion. Uh, the first of Jesus' signs, when he manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. The miracle begins, the miracle is given, excuse me, to show his glory. Right? It reminds us of Pharaoh and the plagues, I think. There, there you have several miracles done over and over and over. And God tells Pharaoh in Exodus 9, I raised you up for this purpose, to show you my power, so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. Same idea here. God arranged it so that this groom would run out of wine. He did that to show his power in Christ. So, oh, there's all kinds of things we could talk about there. Providence, number one. When you're noticing your lack, when you're noticing something that you're missing, and you're starting to complain about it, or you're starting to get angry about it, God arranged that in his providence. God often arranges for us to feel some lack, some need, something we're missing. Something, Of course, the guilt of our sin is, is, a, is a core one. God's arranging for that to happen so that you're drawn to him. Well, that's part of the point, to show his glory. Notice also it's a very public display. Right? Jesus on the cross is a very public display. He's condemned by Pontius Pilate, by the governor. And he's put out there by the main city gate for everybody who's walking by. The sign in three different languages. Public display. And yet, it's also hidden. Because after the fact, the Sanhedrin bribes the guards to cover it up. Right? Very public display in the, past, in the, the Red Sea, the Exodus, where all those plagues are done against Egypt. All, those, all that public display. Oh, same thing. Uh, the glory of Jesus is hidden, though, because we're blind to it. Right? The bridegroom in our story here doesn't even know what's done for him, it seems. Nothing's mentioned about others in the party. What about the servants who drew out the wine and took it to him? They saw, they saw it happen. Nothing's mentioned about their response. The MC, we, we don't know. He thinks the groom did it. So there's a hint there at a lack of belief or, or just an ignorance on the part of some. But the disciples believe. So there you have John the Evangelist again uh, recounting Jesus' great work and then saying some believed, some didn't. Well, uh, with that we'll close. The, the gladness of God is given here. Re recall again the, the end of creation. We're heading for the seventh day the day of rest, when we are sitting down at the great wedding feast of the Lamb, and Jesus will set wine before you, and your cup will run over. You will have joy and gladness, and sorrow and sighing will flee away. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, thank you for uh, giving us this story in John chapter 2. Thank you for uh, replacing uh, sorrow uh, with tears of joy. You promised that in your word. We've read that in Psalm 126 already. Lord, many of us are going out weeping from day to day, bearing seed for sowing. Remind us of your great promises, that we will come home with shouts of joy, 
that we will bring in the sheaves. Lord, your harvest will be great and glorious. In some ways it is already happening as, happening as your people uh, day to day are translated from the church militant to the church triumphant. But on that last great glorious day, you will return with all of your saints and bring uh, your wheat into your barns. And there will be a feast to end all feasts. Heavenly Father, let us lean in to that day and live today honoring it and looking forward to it. As we pray in Christ's name. exhortation we turn to God's word in Isaiah 25 on this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food a feast of well-aged wine of rich food full of marrow of aged wine well refined and he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples the veil that is spread over all nations he will swallow up death forever and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. At the Lord's table here we see a substitution that is at the core of the gospel. The bread and the wine represent the body and the blood of Jesus. He sacrificed his life to spare us the punishment. So instead of our death, we are given the means of life, bread. And above and beyond that, we're given a means of joy in the wine. And this is what we see in Isaiah 25 as well. There are things God's going to take away from us and things he's going to give to us. He takes away death and sorrow and tears and rebukes and reproach. He will give us a feast of excellent meat and wine and fat things. And notice here I'm talking in the future tense. In one sense, this is true already, for God favors you now. But all the sadness and the trouble isn't gone yet. As Aslan said to Lucy, we are not as happy as he means yet for us to be. So we wait for him and for his salvation. The way God brings about his favor is at the cross of Jesus Christ, which this meal represents. So take this time to commune with your Savior, with your Redeemer, now. We do invite you to the Lord's table, all those who are baptized into the triune name of God, all those under the authority of Christ's church in the, the body of, of Christ. By eating the bread and drinking the wine with us, you're acknowledging that you are a sinner without hope in the sovereign mercy of God, that you have uh, trusted in Christ alone for your salvation. So come uh, to Christ now. Come with your children and welcome. Thank you for listening to this audio recording from Christ Church of Livingston County. If you would like further information about anything in this recording, the Bible, about Christ Church of Livingston County, or wish to make any other related inquiry, please feel free to contact us through our website. ChristKirkMI.com. That's C H R I S T K I R K M I.com. Again, 
thank you and blessings.